Good morning. Amen to that song and appreciate so much Brian leading us in our singing this morning. Appreciate all those who have played a part in leading our service. Brett's uh, beautiful prayer and uh, of course Robert jokes about the the sermon being prepared and timed and we've talked about that before and uh, we know the early church met to partake the Lord's Supper and make that the focal point and so we joke about how we have made uh, the preacher or the sermon uh, very important in our day and time uh, but certainly we need to give time and to the Lord's Supper and we appreciate uh, Robert doing that and all those who have led today and will continue to lead us as we worship today and we're certainly grateful that you are here before we get into our lesson for this morning, I do have a couple of announcements and, and housekeeping things, as we usually say, no matter how I try. Uh, Robert, I hope I never have it timed down just right, because I always have a few things that come up that we need to share, and I don't mind that. Uh, hopefully this is a chance where something will stick in your mind that I say, and especially if we have slides to go along with it. Uh, I kind of serve as one of the uh, the vocal or the reach out points for several people and things. They'll let me know information they'd like shared here, and one of those is the Greater Chattanooga Christian Services, GCCS, and we always want to remind you uh, that the congregation here, even as we talked about, uh, as Robert talked about, our elders uh, see that we give uh, money each year, I think it's monthly, but overall each year to GCCS uh, to contribute to their work and the things that they do there, and of course it doesn't say it in the title, but it is a counseling service, uh, and so then they send us information, and they had shared these slides with me and asked if we would share them with you all. There was a newsletter that I forgot to print, but I'll get those maybe printed this afternoon and put out there and you can pick it up. But they try to share information with us as we support them of the things they're doing and the changes that they have made. Uh, of course, GCCS is dedicated to helping individuals and families through professional, affordable Christian counseling. Adoptive home studies at reasonable and competitive rates are available. And of course, at the bottom here is information about contributions. Again, some of your money goes to that as we as a congregation support them. Uh, but if you're interested in, in knowing more or learning more, uh, then you can, can uh, see me or we can put you in touch with them. That information can be shared with you, uh, maybe where you can read it a little easier. Uh, but they are a counseling service. They will be able to see anyone of any age about just about anything. If it's something that's beyond their realm, they can certainly pass you on maybe uh, to a specialist of some sort or a different kind of counseling. But that's just a little general information about them. And then in 2022, they appointed a new executive director, Steve Grubb, who joined in April. Some of you know Steve. Steve has attended at the East Ridge congregation for a long time. They've made some renova renovations to their facility, as well as new signage that were completed and fully funded by individual donations. One thing that they ask for that we don't necessarily do here is they make a Thanksgiving appeal each year. They ask the congregations to take up a special contribution uh, just for uh, the work there. And again, we sort of choose to, to take up you know, the contribution every Sunday and then um, give that some of that to them. But they were able to bring in about 42000 with their Thanksgiving appeal this year. Uh, almost 1,400 counseling sessions were conducted. And 215 clients were seen by their main two counselors, uh, a lady by the name of Rachel Manning and then a man by the name of Jason Brazier. Uh, Brazier came here uh, right before the pandemic hit, if I remember correctly, just maybe at the end of 2019 or the beginning of 2020, and made a presentation. And we've been talking with Steve about trying to get them to come back and update us themselves on their information. Uh, Jason does a lot of things in regards to parents and parenting and families and even technology how technology and cell phones and social media affect our lives. So uh, they're always available. And, of course, you may just need to get in touch and figure out a plan or set up an appointment. Uh, but we're thankful for what they do 
and want to just continue to remind you of those things. Now, a little less serious, uh, but also important is uh, we are looking forward to Saturday evening. If you can be with us, if you're 55 and older, or if you would, uh, if you have a spouse that is, we would love for you to come. We always plan for just a few extra. If the number's 30, we might plan for 35 or 36, but you know, it's not, we've said as well, it's not a Valentine's dinner. You don't have to have a date, but if you're a widow or a widower, we'd love for you to come. And in connection with that this year, we're asking for something very specific, and that is baby pictures of you all. Now, this is a really, really, really cute baby right here, So, uh, but he wasn't born maybe in the 50s or 60s. He was just born about 1982, uh, and he did turn 40 this year, and he is starting to get a little gray hair on top. But, you know, I was thinking, I was like, again, how can I make it where they will remember this, and how can I make it where they will hopefully take this and, and remember to bring these back to us? And I thought, well, nothing else than to show just a really, really Really, really cute baby. I mean, just he's just beautiful, isn't he? Uh, you can't even see the Brave shirt there at the bottom, but, I mean, he was just awesome. Uh, but if you're going to be here, and we would love for you to bring a picture. Now, I know this is Sunday morning, and you're here, uh, but if you can be with us on, on Wednesday night, bring it then. If you forget, that's all right. Bring it Saturday when you show up. We're just hoping to play a little game and have a little fun with some baby pictures. So if you need to bring it with you Saturday, that's okay. Uh, we plan to not really keep them. I mean, you may want to, if you don't have your name on the back or something, you know, take care of that where we can remember it's yours and get it back to you. Uh, but just bring those. We'll take good care of them. We don't want to ruin anything. If you have them digitally, some of you as you've gotten older may have had your kids or grandkids make them digitally where you can email them or text them to me. That would be fine as well. Um, but I just, I didn't want you to lose memory of that. So you can remember this really cute kid here on the screen. Uh, and remember to bring us some pictures Wednesday or Saturday when you come. And we will look forward to a great, great time together. Ezra and Nehemiah were, are two great books in your English Bible that were once together a unified work. We've talked about this. If you were with us last Sunday afternoon, we raced, I mean raced through a lot of history in about 20 minutes so we could get done uh, before the teen singing. Uh, but we talked about a lot of things, a lot of background of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're broken up into two books in our Bible, but we believe and I can understand that they were probably one unified work. And the theme, we might say, of Ezra and Nehemiah is rise up and build. And again, just a reminder, this is what our kids are studying for the Lads to Leaders program that is quickly approaching here in the spring. And so we're trying to encourage them by studying these things along with them. And for the next couple of weeks, uh, this, this Sunday afternoon, if you have a bulletin in front of you, you notice that we will depart this Sunday afternoon and, and cover our book of the month, which is we're up to Zephaniah. Uh, but next Sunday morning, and we will come back and talk more about Ezra and Nehemiah and the theme and the idea of rise up and build. Last Sunday, we talked about the location, not the location in your Bible or the location in the Bible lands, but the location in history. This is the Old Testament books in chronological order, and in the red circle here is Ezra and Nehemiah. As we emphasize, these books are really at the end of your Old Testament when it comes to their place in history. And we said when we talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, when we talk about these books, we are talking about returning home. Now let me also, we talked about it Sunday afternoon, but there were actually three returns between the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first begins in Ezra chapters 1 and 2 there, and it is Zerubbabel that leads the charge 
some 50,000 people and servants returned back to Jerusalem to begin the work on the temple. You see the red arrow there. We're going to talk this morning about Ezra and the second return in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And then the book of Nehemiah is about the third return, which is Nehemiah returning to restore and to rebuild the walls around the city. So there were actually three returns home, so to speak. And remember that these are some of the last events as Israel rebuilds before we enter the intertestamental period or what some people call the 400 years of silence from the end of your Old Testament to where Matthew opens up. There's 400 years where God is not giving instruction in the same way that he has. He's not interacting with his people the same way that he has. And so we're right on the cusp of that right here. And last week we kind of did an overview in both lessons, and this morning we're going to focus on Ezra and the second return at that time. Let me ask you, the question for today is, how do you clean up a big mess? Now this is a picture from the Kansas City News. I didn't, don't remember the year now off the top of my head, uh, but, but a tornado that, that struck around uh, the area of Kansas City there at some point in the last few years. And the question is, how do you clean up a big mess? Have you ever come across a mess that was so large or so big that you didn't even know where to start? Maybe some of you mothers are like my wife who won't even go downstairs where the kids are because it looks like a bomb goes off most of the time. And she says, I don't even know where to begin. And a little less humorous but a little more serious is the idea in this picture. You know, I've never had the opportunity or been able to, to take the time to go and help with a tornado cleanup or something like that, a hurricane cleanup. But I always picture this because in my mind, I imagine walking up from this aerial view and not knowing even where to begin, not even having a clue because there's so much damage, such a mess that it's a little overwhelming and it can even prevent you from starting sometimes. How do you clean up a big mess? And more directly, how do you clean up a mess that you created in your life. This is what Ezra is returning home to in Ezra chapter 7. Zerubbabel returns to work on the temple. Nehemiah returns to work on the wall, but Ezra returns to work on hearts. We might say to restore hearts, and he certainly walks into a big mess when he returns home and is thinking about this idea of restoring the community. I think we emphasized last week, we've got the wall, we've got the temple, and in between we've got community. Or some people say he was trying to restore the Torah, he was trying to restore the law. We might could also say he was trying to restore hearts. If you have your Bible, turn to Ezra chapter 9 to begin this morning. Let's begin first of all with the problem. Let's begin with a problem. If we're going to look at this, this situation in context and what Ezra is going through, walking into this big mess and wanting to restore hearts, let's think about the problem. And Israel's problem is simple. Israel's problem is separation. Notice in your Bible there, Ezra chapters nine, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. 
For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Israel's problem is separation, or really, we might say a lack thereof. They have not separated themselves from the people of the land. Israel has not separated themselves from the heathen people of the land. You might say, well, Joel, I I have neighbors. I have neighbors on my right hand who are members of a denomination, and they teach all kinds of things that are not found in God's Word, that aren't in the Bible. You might say, well, I, I have neighbors on my left hand. And those neighbors are atheists. I've talked to them once or twice. They don't even believe there is a God. Am I supposed to move? Do I have to sell my house and pack up and go somewhere else? Is there some kind of commune where we could all live together? If you're saying that we're supposed to be separated as they were separated away from these heathen people. And I would answer and say, I understand. I understand because God never set a boundary that says we aren't allowed to see or to hear or to touch or to be within a a 15-foot radius of people who don't follow God. But the problem is, is that God knows. And God knows better than us. He knows that while a 15-foot radius is not necessary, that an alarm would go off if someone got too close to us who didn't believe in God. He knows that the longer we hang around and the closer we get to people who live sinful lives, the more likely we are to fall into the same lifestyle. See, that's the problem. It's not a sin to to shake hands with someone or, or to speak to someone or hear someone who doesn't follow God. But God knows better than we know that the more time we spend around them, then more likely we are to fall into their sinful ways. The problem is not just that they are physically close to these heathen people in in a physical proximity, but when they are close to them, they also pick up the practices of those people. That's the problem. Think about it again in context of history. In the 60 years, remember we said that there was roughly 60 years from Ezra chapter 6 to Ezra chapter 7. We close out chapter 6, and before Ezra arrives in chapter 7, there's about 60 years of time. And in those 60 years, the people have gone back to sinful living. I mean, remember, God had warned them, and he had warned them, and then he finally punished them, and he used Nebuchadnezzar, and he used the Babylonians to take them away into captivity. They suffered as exiles for 70 years, 70 years in Babylon, 60 years now that they, more than that they've been back some, and then 60 more years on top of that, excuse me, these, they're exiles living in a strange land, and they finally get the chance to return home. And when they do, they go right back to the sinful living. They go right back to the same things they had been doing. They're practicing things like idol worship, and they're intermarrying with these people. They're not separated. And again, lest you think that we just made this up, You know, it's common today for atheists or for for people who don't follow God to say, you Christians, you know, y'all are just hateful people. You just don't want to be around sinful people and you, you're mean to them and you're just hateful. Lest we just think that's the truth, remember that in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 16, 
And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verse number 3, it is God's command by the law of Moses that they not intermarry with these people. You see, here we are thousands of years, or at least hundreds of years later, back from Exodus and Deuteronomy, when God had said back then, don't intermarry. And if you recall, we come forward from Deuteronomy to Joshua. We come forward to Judges, and they begin to do these things then. And God warns them and warns them, and he punishes them, and they're doing it again. He had commanded them, these marriages will carry you away from me. That's what he says, and yet they're still doing it. They had a problem with separation. They would not separate themselves. And then while we sometimes struggle with that idea of being around Christian, non-Christians, and we say, you know what, we need to have those relationships. We need to pull those people up. We do. We need to reach out to the lost. We need to try. But many of you know from your own lives what happens is, is you don't pull them up, but they pull you down. God knows that, and he warns them about that. And their problem is separation. Before we move on, notice one final condemning statement at the end of verse number 2 there in chapter 9. Indeed, the hand, of the, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Do you understand what you're reading? The leaders actually led, but they led in sin. Those leaders are leading, but they're leading the people in doing the worst among these things. And so we see here that Israel's problem, as Ezra is going to come back and restore hearts, is that they have a problem with separation and the fact that they aren't practicing it. Let's notice number two, Ezra's reaction. If you're still there, open to chapter nine. Notice verse number three. Ezra says, so when I heard this thing, when it comes to my attention, to my ears, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. When the great scribe Ezra hears of this lack of separation, he has a reaction that is, it's certainly something, isn't it? He literally tears his garment and his robe. He, he literally rips his clothes to show his, how upset he is. He plucks out some hair out of his head, out of his beard, and he sits down, just astonished, just slack-jawed, just unbelievable what these people are doing. You see, Ezra has the reaction that we should have thousands of years later looking back with 2020 vision and saying, you dummies, you, you people that won't listen, what's wrong with you? Why won't you do what's right? Now, we are often in their shoes and that we get caught up in the moment and we follow what's wrong, but we can look back with those, that vision and say, man, what were they thinking? In the moment, Ezra is the one that says, this is a problem. Now, you know, in my time, I've seen some mothers some exasperated mothers who are at the end of their rope. But, I mean, this is something here that Ezra is going through, right? His reaction is not just to well up with anger inside. His, his reaction is not just to sort of mope about it and be upset. His reaction is visible grief at what the people are doing. And again, if you've ever seen one of those mamas who's at, about at the end of her rope, right, and she starts to get all over, all over her kids in the store or wherever it might be, Ezra is a moment here. He's a scene when he kind of goes through this visible grief. Some people gather around here in this particular occasion. Verse number four, some people gather around, but he just sits there. He sits there a long time. The Bible says, until the evening sacrifice. And it is at that time of the evening sacrifice that he does what some of us do, what some of us do, and he does what all of us should do. 
and that is that he hits his knees and he prays. He prays. Notice what he says there, Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse number 6. He says, our guilt is as high as the heavens. You ever been guilty of something and just acted like it was a little something? You know, not a big deal. I'll just mention it real quick. He says, it's not like that. Our guilt is as high as the heavens. Verses 8 and 9, he acknowledges the grace of God. He acknowledges how great God is and the grace that he extends to his people. Verse 10, he says, but with God's grace given to us, they, the people, have still abandoned the commandments of God. And even in verses 11 and 12, he mentions those commands. Do you remember we talked about it just a moment ago? The idea of not intermarrying, that was not made up. God said that, and he quotes those commands in verses 11 and 12. He, he says what they have violated. Verse 13, he says that God has punished them even less than they deserved. Hear, hear that? Do you understand the way that might be turned around? He doesn't say, God, you've done too much. You've given us more than we can bear. You know, sometimes we look at maybe an authority or the kids look at us and say, that doesn't match. You've punished me way worse than the crime. Ezra says, no, we, you have punished us less than we deserve. We deserve much worse than you have given to us because of how awful the people have been. And in verse 15, he says, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And again, one final note here before we move on to the next section. Look through that again. Look through his prayer, verses 6 through 15. Look at how he prays. And notice, there's no request from Ezra. One final interesting note, just like as we said a moment ago, that the leaders are really leading in sin. One final interesting note here is that Ezra doesn't actually beg for anything. He doesn't actually beg for forgiveness. He simply states their sinfulness and places their sins and their lives in the hands of God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ask for forgiveness. The New Testament certainly teaches that we can receive it and we should ask for it when we sin. But in this moment, Ezra doesn't beg, he doesn't plead, he doesn't make excuses or, or make any requests from God. He just prays, God, here is my sin, here is our sin. And he leaves the sinfulness and their lives in the hands of God. All right, let's move on to chapter 10 then, and let's notice the people's response. Chapter 10 in verse number 1. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Listen carefully because the people's reaction is hope. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Ezra has just prayed this awful prayer. He is weeping. He is moaning. He is groaning, missing hair, clothes torn. People say there's still hope. There is hope in this. Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. Let us make a covenant to put away these foreign wives. And verse 4, we will be with you, Ezra. We have your back. Be strong. Be courageous. 
take action because we will stand with you. Now, this man, Shechaniah, there in verse number 2, we know nothing else about him. We don't know any background. We know nothing further. But he is willing to make a statement, to take a stand, and to have this conversation and say, we will make a covenant. We will be with you. Ezra, if you, are take, if you will take action, we have your back, as we say. And so in verse number 5, Ezra gets up. And he makes them take an oath that they will do this thing, that they will get right. They'll get right with God. They'll follow through with what they've said. They won't just give lip service, but they will take action. And notice that the people here are self-motivated. Ezra doesn't force them into anything, at least at first. They're moved by their own sin to make a change. And I don't know if this is the best place to insert it, but I'll just will here in this moment. But in context, these two chapters are about marriage. And many of us got to attend the marriage retreat this weekend, heard a lot of great lessons on marriage. And there are certainly a lot of problems with our world today and the way that we treat marriage, what people think about marriage. This is in context about marriage and the problems that sometimes exist. But I think that we can maybe open up here to sin in general, more broadly. It may be something else in your life. If we're talking about restoring hearts, there could be a problem with marriage or your marriage, but there could also be other problems in your life. That I think we can kind of take this idea of not only a, a lack of separation. You see, when we have a lack of separation, we're separated from sin to God. That's what we should do. But when we lack that, we're with sin. So maybe that's the problem. It's not so much separating from the people, but it's separating from sin. And some people have a visible grief type of reaction like Ezra did. Our response then should be hope, but not just to say, oh God, I hope that you'll help me. Oh God, I hope that I'll quit that. But it is to make a, a covenant, to make an oath of sorts, if you will, to stand up and to take action, not just give lip service. The people's response is hope, but they're just not wishing and hoping they're willing to take action, and that's what that hope involves. And as we think about our lives, we need to be self-motivated to separate from sin and to be with God and to have that hope that the Bible speaks about. Now, by way of some application for you and for me, let's notice that what we see in these final two chapters of the book of Ezra is this idea of how we can approach God when we are confronted with our own sin and sinfulness and unfaithfulness. What can we do? Again, kind of drawing away from this context of these people and these marriages, but to us. When we've got a problem with God, really God has a problem with us because of our sin, what can we do? When we seek to restore hearts, what should our attitude be? Number one, humility. Ezra was showing great humility. Now, I always say I hope you hear me clearly. But I'm not suggesting that you got to rip out your hair or your beard, okay? Nobody has to do that. But Ezra tears his clothes in a physical manifestation of how he is feeling internally. He is that bothered. Have you ever been that upset? You know, some people these days have rooms or places where they can go and, and punch the wall or, or a punching bag or take a bat to something to, to show their anger about whatever it might be. Some of the sin and, and crime and problems we have in our life are when people lose their cool and they want to show that anger. 
Ezra shows it in a sense, but he also shows great humility because he doesn't just tear his clothes. He doesn't just make a scene, but as chapter 10 and verse 1 tells us, he is mourning, he is weeping, and he prays. We know the quotation in James chapter 4 and verse number 10. Once again, we sing it very often. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, that's what Ezra needed to do, and he did. That's what James is telling us to do as Christians under the new covenant, and we should. But then you see that all throughout time, to approach God when we are in sin, we need to do so with humility. Ezra here is a great example of that. Number two, we need to make confession to him. Notice carefully if you're filling out your outline that these are going to sort of match up closely. But notice, first of all, it says exactly to confess to him. Ezra confessed the glory and grace of God. That's what Ezra confessed. He confessed to him the glory and grace of him, of God. Again, we often sing it. But God is so good. He's so good to me. God has been good to us. God has been gracious to us. God doesn't strike us dead the first moment we mess up, but he allows us to see our sin and allows us a chance to repent. Now, as we're about to sing a song of invitation in just a moment, we know that we don't know when that moment's coming, but we have all been blessed with many chances so far as I look at our lives and our ages and know that we have been blessed with opportunity. God doesn't just strike us dead. The chance may come that we may die or the Lord may return before we have a chance to repent if we don't take advantage of it. But that's not the way God works. He allows us to see our sin. He allows us a chance to repent. And so thirdly, we see confession of sin. The second point was confession to him, praising God for how great and gracious he is. But we also must confess our sin. Ezra confessed the people's failure and their sinfulness. And we need to do that. By the way, not others' sins, but our own. We don't need to make excuses. We need to simply confess our sin. And Ezra was willing to do that. He was willing to help by leading in that charge, mourning, weeping, praying to God. In this context, it's the marriages. In our context, what might it be? It's just sin in general. It may be something specific in your life. It could be something else you're dealing with. But as we think about restoring hearts this morning, as Ezra was trying to do, we need to consider our lives. I know we went from the front straight to the back of the book of Ezra. I told you we were only going to try to do this for about a month, just a few weeks, and so we don't have a lot of time to go verse by verse. But as we have said, you know, there's only so much time in these lessons. Ezra was not there to rebuild the temple. Ezra was not there to rebuild the wall. Ezra was there to rebuild hearts, to restore hearts. We began with this question at the beginning of the lesson. How do you clean up a big mess? And that picture, as I think about that picture of the storm, I think you do in your life as people do in those kinds of moments. You just start. You just start. You start limb by limb. You start piece by piece. You start sin by sin, and you just do it. You just get started. Sometimes you have to start small, but you just start one piece at a time. The question this morning is, how do we restore hearts? 
How do we restore our hearts back to God, back to serving him? We just start one piece at a time. Perhaps this morning you need restoring. The first slide that we usually show here encourages us that we may need to be restored in the first sense to God as a child of God. We'll sing to encourage you through the song that's been selected if you need to be added to the church this day. Again, we don't vote on you. It's nothing that we can do other than assist you with being baptized for the remission of your sins. It is truly God's simple plan of salvation. If you would like to study more, we have great ways, different things we can do to go through the Word of God and see exactly what it says about how one becomes a Christian, a child of God, baptized for the remission of sins so that the Lord can add you to His church. But as we see with the children of Israel, once we become Christians, we don't have to be baptized time and time again, and we're thankful for that. But we can simply be restored through confession, repentance, and prayer. God makes, it, makes a way. He makes it possible that if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, that you can still come back to him. You can still be restored. One of our elders will be at the front here in just a moment and be willing and eager to pray with you and for you. If it's a public sin of a public nature that you'd like to make known, we would love to do that. If it's a private sin that you need to take care of between you and God, you can do that where you sit. You can do that this morning before you leave. Just take care of it. Because as we said, we don't know when the time will come. We don't mean to be emotional or to try to play on emotions, but it's true that we're not promised tomorrow, and we want to be right with God. We want to be restored. You can come to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing. Almost to the end of our book of the month study for the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, so here's your chance again. If you need to uh, spend a few minutes trying to find Zephaniah, uh, you can go to the back of your Old Testament and be looking. Uh, I will tell you that I think if you can find Matthew, which is usually pretty easy, be about 10 to 15 pages based on your Bible backwards from there. Maybe a little easier to do that way. Uh, and of course, if you're a cheater and you got one of those iPads or tablet thingies or phones that you're looking on, then I guess it's a little easier to find. But uh, we are going to be looking at Zephaniah this afternoon and you can be turning there because again, sometimes it's even hard uh, for anyone if you're using just you know regular paper Bible to kind of go through those um, Old Testament minor prophets and find uh, where they are. So you can be turning there and we'll begin there in just a moment. We have been looking at a book of the month uh, for several years now and we are nearing the end of the Old Testament and those uh, mi minor prophets that are towards the end. As I mentioned to you, I think before, maybe last month, uh, we will plan to take at least one month or if not two together and look at the intertestamental period. Maybe you've studied that before. Maybe you have never even heard that phrase. I have no idea uh, you know, how many days or years come between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. But I think there's some rich study there for us for that. Um, if you know much about the Pharisees and Sadducees and those groups, and that's really where they get their, their name from or get their time coming from is that intertestamental period. During the time of God's silence, there is, there's no mention of Pharisee in the Old Testament or Sadducee. And then you open up Matthew and, of course, as Jesus is born and begins uh, moving around and begins his ministry, then you hear these people. Where do they come from? Why are they there? What's, what's the reason that they're battling against Jesus? We'll look at all that. And I think it can be very encouraging for us. Uh, as we've said now for several months, and we will again just for a few more here, uh, we're looking at the minor prophets. I'll see if I can go backwards one here. Uh, and I know it's hard for you to make out, even as for me standing this close, but the blue books in the middle section to the right-hand side are the Old uh, Testament minor prophets, as this sort of graphic shows, the law, the history, poetry, 
And we've gone through the major prophets, and so now we're examining these minor prophets, which are minor only in length, not in importance. Uh, as we're going to say with Zephaniah, sometimes there's some interesting things that are found there that may not quite have the same application for us, but they're certainly there for a purpose, for a reason for us to learn from. And of course, we have said just about every month now, as we've examined Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, uh, we have mentioned each time that one of the main purposes, or there are four here, of the minor uh, prophets is to point out God's majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice, and how he deals with mankind. And I wish I had grabbed it for this, for this presentation this afternoon, um, but if you can remember what we've been looking at on Sunday mornings with the screen that shows the Old Testament in chronological order, the one with the red circle at the end, I think I pointed out last week, but at the top and the bottom is where those minor prophets fall. And they're kind of broken down over uh, the major books that give us the history. And so it's interesting to consider that. And I hope that uh, that's beneficial for you as you try to piece together exactly what the Old Testament is, exactly what it's there for and how it looks. Um, and it's a little different maybe than it's laid out in our English Bibles. All right, we're going to talk about a brief outline to begin. And there's really three sections now. As you can see at the bottom of this slide, it's not broken down just chapter for chapter. Sometimes it's nice and neat. It comes in a really easy package for us. We can say chapter 1 is this, chapter 2, chapter 3. There is some overlap here. This first section goes from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2 and verse number 3. But we might say, and if you have a bulletin in front of you and you're filling that in, you can see the pattern here. But we're going to be talking about wrath and God's wrath in particular. The first chapter deals with look within, we might say. Look within, because there is wrath that is approaching for Judah. Now, again, some of you, this makes sense. You've heard it before and a lot. Maybe you remember others. You kind of get lost in, in some of the things that happen. Remember that at one time, there was one united kingdom. We call it the United Kingdom. Different, of course, than what we refer to as the UK uh, today kind of idea. But God's people were one united kingdom, and then they separated. And we refer to them as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, what we've been talking about with Ezra and Nehemiah is coming after the southern kingdom, which is the second to go into captivity, goes into captivity. But here's the point about that. They're carried away by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonian, the Babylonian Empire of captivity. But first, the northern kingdom was carried away. So here's the thing about looking for within for wrath. These people had seen their brothers and sisters be carried away into Assyrian captivity. This was the map that we had last week. And again, I know there was a lot of slides, a lot of information. But last week it showed that bigger fish, right, keep coming over. And on that map, there was the Assyrian Empire... The Assyrians were then taken over by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. Eventually, Rome and Greece come along. All that we know from world history. But the northern kingdom is carried away into Assyrian captivity. And so Judah, the southern kingdom, sees that. They watch that. And yet here they are, and wrath is coming for them because they have not learned their lesson. Nor the northern kingdom has already fallen, and Judah is just kind of hanging around. And unfortunately, they're continuing in sin so that their judgment is coming too. And these prophets are preaching to them. The Lord's going to come. There will be punishment. You're worshiping idols. You're doing all these things. You're not serving Jehovah God, the creator of the world, and you will be punished. And even though they've seen destruction, they've seen their brethren be carried away, 
There is wrath that is approaching for Judah, and they need to look within. Number two, we might say the second section of Zephaniah is dealing with look around. Look around for wrath, because there is a wrath that will be approaching for all nations. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if the United States will continue to stand for as long as we all live. We often compliment and appreciate these first three pews up here, two pews or so. Even Joe, we'll throw Joe in with them sometimes. Um, but we appreciate these first few pews here. But we also worry because we don't know what the future holds. We're thankful that our country has been strong for many years in religious freedom, and we hope that it will continue that way. We, we pray about that, but we don't know that that will be the case. And I don't mean to you know, play on emotions or try to scare anybody, but it's true that God has used nations across time for his purposes, and we're not privy to all that information, nor are we privy to the future. And so, but I say all that to ask you to try to imagine yourself in Judah's position. You are the people of God. The United States is not God's people, but certainly we as God's people live here. Judah watched their brethren be carried away. We, they watched the Assyrians. They're watching the Babylonian. And it's easy to say, God, what are you doing? Why is it that you would use heathens to, to, have, to gain control, to have the most money in the world, to be in power? And at times, we do get frustrated that sinful people maybe are the ones who are in charge or the ones who have the most money or have the most prestige. But with Judah, as it was with the northern kingdom, and even still today, in a sense, the surrounding nations will suffer God's wrath at some point in time. The sinful people of the world will face God's wrath. They'll be held accountable as well. Did God use Assyria to take away the northern kingdom? He did. Did he use Nebuchadnezzar to take away the southern kingdom? He did. And it's easy as God's people to say, what are you doing? Why are you punishing us? God says, you needed to be punished. But their time is coming as well. Look around because the surrounding nations will face wrath. They will be held accountable. That was part of Ezekiel. I didn't look to see how long ago it's been that we studied Ezekiel. But when we talked about Ezekiel, we remembered that, that that's part of what Ezekiel is. Hey, judgment is coming for everyone, the surrounding nations as well. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, deals with Egypt. Do you know why? Do you remember why? It's because sometimes Israel, even though they were God's people, they would run to Egypt for help. They didn't trust in God. They said, this is the most powerful nation. They've got the most money. They've got the most horses and chariots. We'll run to them. We won't pray to God for help. We'll go to Egypt. God says, there's wrath coming for all nations. Again, chapter 2, verse 4 through chapter 3 and verse number 8. And then number 3, look beyond. Look beyond after wrath, we might say. After wrath, there will be healing. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, the end of the book. This is how all the prophets end. Now, sometimes it's different. Maybe it's just one verse. Maybe it's one little snippet, and here it's several verses. But the prophets all end with this encouraging word, sometimes just speaking of the coming Messiah, which is hundreds of years coming. But there is hope, and there will be healing. Healing. There is gloom and doom often in the message of the prophets. I always joke, right? We joke around, I joke with you, that you read the Old Testament and you get hung up when you get to the genealogies, right? Or you get to the law, you don't want to read it. Have you ever gotten to the minor prophets and stopped before? They're short, and you might say, oh, I, I can read through that in, a, in 30 minutes. Yeah, but when you really start reading it, it's gloom and doom. 
It's about punishment. But then in the prophets, there is a message of hope, ultimately looking to the coming Messiah. And so that's a brief outline. If you kind of think about the book of Zephaniah, looking for God's wrath in three different ways there. Who's the author of the book? Well, we think, believe it's Zephaniah, not to try to be tricky. We do usually point out sometimes that it is the Holy Spirit, ultimately, as the Holy Spirit moved men to speak, uh, inspired men to speak and to write. Uh, it is the Holy Spirit, but of course, it's Zephaniah. His name means Jehovah hides or Jehovah has hidden. If you have your Bible open there, look in chapter 2 and verse number 3. There's an interesting, maybe, possibly a play on his name. In chapter 2 and verse number 3. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. We sing that sometimes, don't we? We sing songs about that. Hide me, O thou great Jehovah. Hide me in the hollow of thine hand. We sing songs with this imagery, and that's what Zephaniah's name means. It means Jehovah hides or Jehovah has hidden. And it's kind of interesting that maybe there in chapter 2, verse 3, may be a brief reference to that. We have very little information, very little personal information recorded. The only thing we really have is in chapter 1 and verse number 1. If you look there, there's a list of names uh, in a, sort of a brief genealogy. Uh, I'm not going to read them. The kids have already made fun of me in Bible Bowl practice for butchering names today once. So I'm not doing it. I'm not giving them that pleasure again, okay, by messing up anymore. Uh, there was a whole section in uh, Nehemiah that I tried to get through, and it was terrible. Uh, but so if you look in chapter 1 and verse number 1, there is this list of names. But here's what's interesting is if this is, is true, if this genealogy is true, and we believe that. I don't mean to to uh, insinuate otherwise, but this would make him the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. So he may have royal blood, which is kind of interesting because then maybe Zephaniah, and again, we're doing some conjecture, but maybe Zephaniah was what we might call like an aristocrat. You know, that may be the kind of person he was. Now go back in your mind again, maybe the end of last year, I guess it would have been October, November, December, we talked about Amos. One of those months, Amos was a good old country boy. Amos was a good old country boy. What we know of him is, is he, that was his, uh, his style. That was where he was from. And so, again, just trying to draw a little bit out, maybe about Zephaniah, it's possible that he had royal blood and he was maybe had some money, we might say, and like an aristocrat in his life. And that's the position he's coming from. It also would mean that he would be related to King Josiah. Uh, Josiah is, was one of the good kings, or at least part of his life was serving in a good way. Uh, Zephaniah is often called the prophet of God's wrath. I didn't put this in your notes in the bulletin, but last, uh, last month we talked about it as well when we looked at Habakkuk as kind of having a title, a, a, a man-made title, not that God refers to him that way, but Zephaniah is sometimes called by man the prophet of God's wrath because he speaks so often about God pouring out his wrath on the people. And we've already mentioned that in our brief outline. He was probably a contemporary with Jeremiah and possibly Nahum and Habakkuk. Now, he comes right after Nahum and Habakkuk here in our Bibles, but it doesn't always flow with us when we think about Jeremiah being earlier, that they may have been walking the earth at the same times, sometimes maybe aware of each other, other times maybe they weren't. They were operating in different spaces. Uh, but Zephaniah is certainly uh, the prophet of God's wrath. 
the message. The message of Jeremiah, we might say, is the coming day of the Lord. I didn't want to list and and wasn't going to pull out every single one of the references, but at least seven times uh, the name or the phrase, the idea, the day of the Lord is mentioned in Zephaniah. Now, we have to be careful. Here's the preacher's warning. And once again, you've got to be careful with the context of when you read the day of the Lord. Do you remember in Joel chapter 2? Uh, we kind of emphasized this when we talked about Joel. But Joel chapter 2, that it says, uh, it talks about the day of the Lord and, and different places there. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord in Joel chapter 2 is looking to the day of Pentecost. That great day, that was something to look forward to. The Messiah would come, in a sense, in this day of the Lord, the future, in that kind of way. Joel 2 is a prophecy of Pentecost. And again, in Joel 2, in verse number 31, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That that is talking about the culmination of salvation. The the prophecy of Pentecost, Acts 2, the church is established, Peter preaches, people are baptized for the remission of their sins, the church begins. Joel 2 is talking about this great and awesome day of the Lord. Zephaniah is not talking about that. Zephaniah is talking about the day of the Lord that's not to be looked forward to because he's talking about the destruction that is coming, their punishment that is coming. So we've got to pay attention. This is the message, but it's not the same message that Joel preached in Joel chapter 2. We've got to pay attention and try to understand. I know sometimes if you've never looked at the minor prophets that way, it can be overwhelming. But we just need to try to to look at that and understand what the prophecy is talking about. Zephaniah is saying wrath is coming. Not the church. Punishment is coming. And they shouldn't be looking forward to the coming day of the Lord as Zephaniah is preaching about it. All right. When we talk about a few key thoughts... God is saying that he's going to deal with their idolatry and pride. That's what he's telling them. He's going to deal with their idolatry and their pride. And we might say there are four main sins of Judah. Four main sins of Judah. The first one is that she heeded no voice or admonition. Think about it. They had the law. They had the law of Moses. They weren't following it. They had the prophets. They had the prophets. They weren't listening. They had history. What do we mean by history? We're talking about the northern kingdom. They saw the northern kingdom be carried away, and they could understand that this might happen to us. The law, the prophets, the history, it's all there laid out. And they wouldn't listen. They heeded no voice nor any admonition. They had it in front of them, yet it's just tough to read and to think about. We do see that borne out in our lives sometimes, right? People still won't listen. We still don't listen. But that is one of the main sins of Judah. Number two, she, of course, the children of Israel, Judah, she accepted no instruction. Kind of in connection with that. uh, But again, they were not listening to what was laid out before them. Zephaniah is not the only one to say, repent, repent, turn, stop, don't continue in these ways. Nope, not going to listen, not going to accept any instruction. Number three, she did not trust in God. We see in several places in the prophets the mention that the people would trust in horses, in chariots. As I mentioned with the northern kingdom, they would trust in Egypt. They would trust in other nations. They would trust in idols. They would trust in golden statues and things before they trusted in God. They would not trust in him. And so his wrath is 
coming. And then number four, she did not draw near to God for help. Again, kind of in connection with that previous thought, um, but they would not. They would go other places. Um, they would put their trust in those things, those earthly things, and not draw near to God. And, you know, again, we joke sometimes about the preacher, preacher's message. Robert, you know, kind of made his comments this morning. I I'm thankful that I have a message of hope. Those prophets had a message of hope in the end in a way, but they're really preaching things people don't want to hear. And as preachers today, we do try to balance. We do try to preach about sin and against sin. We do try to preach the positives of God's love and salvation and hope and grace and try to find the balance. But Zephaniah and many others, it wasn't something that people wanted to hear because they continued to do wrong. In the book of Zephaniah, we learn a lot about God's character. We learn about, a lot about God's character. Uh, I didn't list all these for you because I knew I wouldn't have room, but I'm going to try to give you just a couple if you're making your own notes or want to jot out to the side. Uh, number one, we learn about God's anger and wrath. I mean, we've already said that, but his anger and his wrath and his jealousy. Chapter 1 and verse number 18. I will give you some references here if you have your Bible open and want to look real quickly. Again, mine's just a couple of pages and covers the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 18. In the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Chapter 2 and verse 2. Before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Chapter 3 and verse number 8. Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. We learn a lot about God's anger and wrath and even his jealousy. Homer Haley, some of you know the name Homer Haley, who wrote uh, a lot of commentaries and books. We have some in our library. But Homer Haley once said that God's jealousy is his righteous resentment and indignation at being supplanted in the affection of his people by empty idols and having his righteousness exchanged for pagan wickedness. That's what God's jealousy and anger is about. Number two, we learn that he will famish the gods of this earth. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. He will famish the gods of this earth. Now, in the New King James, it says there, the Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. Or, as I said, first of all, he will famish the gods of this earth. We learn that God is God. God is in control. We sometimes say he's capital G, God, right? The God. And as it says here in verse number 11, little g, gods, the gods of the earth. He will famish them. He will reduce them to nothing. You can put as much gold as you want into these statutes and things, but it's not going to stand because God will famish them. Number three, that he is Lord of hosts. Chapter two and verse number nine. He is Lord of hosts, God of Israel. Verse nine, therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is who he is. He is also just. Chapter three and verse number five. He is just. We are not, we like to think we are, we do our best sometimes, we have a justice system that tries to work justice, but we're human and we mess up, and here we see that God is just. He is mighty and he saves. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, 
He is mighty and he saves. The Lord, your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is the end. This is the looking beyond the wrath. He saves. He is mighty. He wants his people to seek him, to obey him, to wait upon him, to serve him, to trust him. That's who God is. That's what he wants. He also has that anger and jealousy. He also will reduce the gods of the earth to nothing. But he wants his people to obey him, to trust in him. And we learn about God's character as we read these three short chapters here. All right, just a couple of lessons or a few lessons here. I think the last one may be the one that's in your bulletin if you have one. But a couple others that uh, we didn't have room to fit in. Number one, a person, that's not supposed to be number one, by the way. A person or one becomes like the God or God he worships. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 2. Chapter 1 and verse number 2. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. We become like the God or God we worship. You notice the difference there. We already mentioned it just a moment ago. As we think about the God of heaven and his way of working. God deserves first place in our life. Something is first place in our lives. Is it God or is it our spouse? Again, several of us were at the marriage retreat. It was very encouraging. Encourage our marriages to think about our spouse. But always with the undercurrent, even through those lessons, that your spouse should not be number one because God should be number one. Is it your children? God blesses us with children if you so choose to have them. They're a blessing. They're encouraging. You strive to train them. But they should not be number one. God should be number one. What else is it that we sometimes put in the place? Is it money? Is it gold? Is it idols? Even though they may not be statues, whatever statues, whatever it may be, something is first place in our life and we become like that. We ask the question sometimes, things like situational ethics. You know, is it okay to miss services to do this or to do that? And I would simply suggest that while we want to try to have these lines drawn and we want people to say yes, no, yes, no, and check off boxes, what we would simply say is, is that as we miss services of the church, as we do other things instead of worshiping and gathering with the church, those are the kind of actions that show who we're like. Is there anything wrong with working? Absolutely not. God says we should work. If a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. Things like that. But when a person says, you know what? I can never be at services because I've got to work more and more. It's one thing to be scheduled to work. It's another thing to say I just can't be there. It's another thing to say, well, I'm taking on extra so that I can pay for more things for my family. Then that's who we're becoming like. We become like who we worship or what we worship. Whether it's our spouse, our children, our job, money, whatever it may be. And that's the same lesson that we get here from the people during Zephaniah's day. They were conforming to these idols. They were being like the nations around them. And they were going to, that's what God could see. And then they're going to suffer. Number two, partial devotion is unacceptable. Look at chapter two, excuse me, chapter one, verse number five. Chapter one and verse number five. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but also swear by Milcom. And you may see a different name there like Molech or something different, but it's, a, it's another god. It's an idol that they would worship. Just like we read about earlier in the Old Testament, Baal. 
That's kind of the name that's here. And God is saying that partial devotion is unacceptable. We should follow God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should give everything to him. And when we try to divide that, Jesus says you're lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, I would spew you out of my mouth. I can't handle things like that. I cannot be around people who are lukewarm, he says essentially. Partial devotion is unacceptable. And then number three, God's judgment falls upon all. Again, chapter 2, verses 3 through 15, make mention of this idea of God's judgment coming upon the nations as well. It's not just God's people, but it's also upon, um, upon all nations. We see the same message borne out in the New Testament, that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all give an account of the things that we have done, and we need to understand that. It's easy to see people have success, just as Judah sometimes did, and say, boy, I, why, God? That's not fair. Now, God's judgment comes upon all, and we can see that even here in this very short book like Zephaniah. I hope that this has been encouraging for you, again, for just a few short minutes to try to examine these things. This is a great one. I know you hate when the preacher gives you homework, but this is a great one to take and maybe try to read on your own. Uh, even today, go home. Five minutes. Read over it. Think about this context. Think, think about the things that we've talked about already. And I hope that these uh, book of the month studies continue to encourage you as we think about and draw near to the old, the end of the Old Testament and the coming of the Messiah. We do pause at the end of this lesson to extend heaven's invitation to you. Uh, as we often say, maybe a lesson like this doesn't draw up something in your mind, but maybe you've been wrestling with something else. Still, the lessons we learn from the minor prophets, like partial devotion is unacceptable, can apply to us. We're just thankful for this opportunity that presents itself. If you're here and you're not a child of God, we would sing to encourage you to become a Christian, put on Christ in baptism, and if you'd want to know more, we'd study with you as soon as possible. If you've done that, brother or sister, but you've wandered away, you can come back to him. Again, maybe it's something like partial devotion, maybe it's something else, but you don't have to leave and face the week that lies ahead with the heavy burden of unfaithfulness or sin. Come back to him and ask for forgiveness, and he is faithful and just to do just that. We would love to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.